Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you and praise you for that promise, Lord, that we will indeed rise. And Lord, it's not because of who we are, but because of who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, we ask as we go to your word right now that your Holy Spirit would speak. This would not be the words or the opinions of men, but Lord, it would be the living, breathing word of God transforming our lives. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys again. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. As we've been talking about, this is a book that most people, when you think about it, you think about prophecy and end times, and certainly there's a good reason for that because it is a book that speaks about the end times and about the the end of the age. But as we saw last week, the real focus of this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ that we might know Jesus better. The word revelation, as we talked about last week, mean, or the word is also apocalypse, which is the unveiling. Now, a lot of people have said, why do, you know, the book of Revelation seems heavy. How does that unveil Jesus Christ to us? Well, first, in the first chapter, and especially this week and next, we're really going to see the character of our Savior. But if we just had the Gospels, we would see him as the suffering Savior, and we would see him as the baby in a manger and the risen Lord, and all those things, of course, are absolutely important, and without them, we'd be lost. But we must also see that while he's the suffering servant, he's also a righteous judge. He's a God who will suffer long, but he will not suffer always. And his desire is that none should perish, no, not one. And the book of Revelation reveals the character of our God, that because he is holy, he must judge sin. Now, as we talked about last week, many Christians and even entire denominations see this book and, and all its imagery and find it difficult to understand, so they avoid it altogether. And those who do, do not get a complete picture of our Savior. Again, we must see more than just the suffering servant, but also the righteous judge. It's in this book that he raptures his bride and takes his church unto himself. He brings judgment upon those who continue to rebel against him. And we see in this book that these events will happen suddenly, and you and I need to be ready. Last week, we saw how this word was delivered. It was given to the, from the Father to the Son to an angel who delivered it to John, who gave it to us. So we ought to count it a blessing and a privilege that we can hold this letter in our hands given by Almighty God that we can read it today. Amen? And then finally, before we get into this morning's text, the last thing we talked about last week is that he talked about blessed are those who read this word, but not only read it, but those who hear it, but more importantly, most importantly, those who keep it. Guys, it's not enough to read the Bible or even to hear the Bible if we're going to ignore what it says. Amen? It must impact our lives. It must go beyond just, you know, something that we read or something that we hear. We must respond to it in obedience. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 4. And the outline this morning is the unveiling of Jesus. We're going to see these five things. First, a greeting from God. Then we're going to see who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. Secondly, thirdly, what Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has promised to do. And then after John gets done speaking, Jesus is going to introduce himself. Since this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, it makes sense that he would introduce himself. We're going to see how Jesus introduces himself. So let's pick up in verse 4 in the unveiling of Jesus. First of all, a greeting from God. Here's what it says. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now remember, again, I know we have new people, so 
I know this is repetitive for some of you, but when letters were written in those days, they were written on scrolls. And so it was very customary that whoever wrote the letter would at the top write who was writing, who the author was, so that you didn't have to, you know, like a letter we'd write today, they don't have to undo the whole scroll to find out who's writing. So it's coming from John. A quick refresher about this man, John. He was the apostle whom Jesus loved. He had a very close relationship with the Lord when he was on the earth. He's the brother of James. He was one of the sons of thunder. His brother James was the first of the apostles who was martyred. John was the last apostle at the cross. He cared for Jesus' earthly mother, Mary. He wrote the Gospel of John and First and Second and Third John. He had endured great persecution. According to Christian tradition, he was boiled in oil and did not die because we're indestructible until God's through with us. Amen. And then... He is now the last living apostle as he's writing this letter. It's been about 60 years since Jesus went back into heaven. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos, and that's where he ends up writing this letter. So this is John. He's writing the letter, and who's he writing it to? To the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, originally addressed to the seven selected churches of Asia, Asia, he has special messages to each of them that we're going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Some people wonder why seven churches. Well, seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. It's been suggested that these seven churches are a representation of the church as a whole, that when you look at these seven churches, they represent the whole church. Some see each church as a different stage of time in, uh, in the church during the church age, like the church is at this point now and then this point next. And we'll go over that when we get to chapters two and three. And we'll see that these attributes of the church others believe, are present both then and in the church today. And we'll see that again more in chapters 2 and 3. Now, the church, seven churches in Asia, when you think of Asia, don't think of Japan or China. Think of, uh, it's more the Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And that's where these churches were located. Now, when speaking to the seven churches, he had several things he had to say that were good about what they were doing. Some of the things that he'll say, and we'll see next in a couple weeks, they rejected evil, they were persevering and patient, they endured suffering, they had hearts of faith and love and service, and they kept the word and they honored the name of the Lord. But they also had some criticism that came from the Lord. They had lost their fervency and their love for the Lord. They were tolerating immorality, idolatry, and false teaching. The church was dead spiritually, and they had become indifferent. Well, that sounds like the church today a lot of ways, doesn't it? You know, Lord, help us. You know, the Bible talks about him being our first love. He shouldn't be getting the leftovers. He needs to be the priority in our lives, amen? You know, when he came, you were the priority in his life. He came that you might have life and life more abundant. He came that you would not have to go to hell and spend eternity separated from him. He came to pay the price for your sin and suffer and die in your place. Boy, you are the focus of his time upon the earth, glorifying the Father and dying in your place. How much more should he be the focus of our time on this earth? Amen? And so the church, these seven churches, again, seven being the number of completion, is prevalent in this book. We're going to see the seven stars, the seven lampstands, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vials. And then there are seven blessed R's in the book of Revelation. Blessed R or Beatitudes is blessed means, oh, how happy. And I'm going to read the seven blessed R's in the book of Revelation. Oh, how happy are. And the first one is, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written in it. We saw that last week. 
When we get to chapter 14, blessed are those who die in the Lord. You know what? Christians die well. Amen? I mean, I, I, when I go to a memorial service and it's a believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And while we grieve because we miss them, we do not grieve as those without hope because they're in heaven and they're doing way better than we are. Amen? Blessed is he who watches. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Blessed is he who keeps the words of prophecy in this book. And then finally, blessed are those who do his commandments. They may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Oh, how happy are those who keep the things written in this book. Guys, it's hard to keep the things written in the book if we don't read it. Amen? You know, guys, we like to try to put stuff together without reading the instruction manual, right? Amen? And I, that is, you know, usually you end up with some parts left over, and it's just kind of a mess. And, you know, I've learned, and I still blow it, but I've learned that, you know, just read the instruction book. Hey, guys, you've got an instruction book for life, and it's in your lap right now. Amen? And let's make sure we spend time seeking his face that he might direct our lives. The truth that we're going to find in this book is the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, God's righteous judgment, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and then eternity in heaven or in hell, depending on how we respond to the Lord. This ought to motivate us to live holy and obedient lives. Amen? All right. So then he says, this message is to the seven churches. Then he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. First of all, he says grace, and as so many times before, the word there is a Greek greeting, which is charis. May the Lord bless you with more than you deserve. That's what grace means. And peace is the Hebrew greeting, shalom, peace, quietness, rest. It's always in that order, grace and then peace, because guys, without God's grace, we will never have peace. Amen? If you're trying to find peace in your achievements and your your job and your money and your house and your possessions, whatever it might be, you're never going to have peace. But you know what? You can have none of those things, but if you've experienced the grace of God, you truly will know peace. Amen? And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So it's always in that order. And I love this, this greeting of grace and peace. It's only good because of who's, who's greeting us this way. It's coming not from man, but it's coming from the one who can make this promise sure. From him who is who was, and who is to come. Now we're going to see the Trinity in these verses. This speaks first of, the, of our Heavenly Father, who is, who was, and who is to come. In Exodus 3, Moses asked God, what is your name? You're sending me to the children of Israel. I want to tell them who sent me. I don't know your name. And God told him his name was, I am. I am. That's an uh, amazing name. But I am, I am that I am. He is both eternal and immutable. He always has been, he always will be. He has not and nor will he ever change. He's the great I am. Now you and I, it's the I wish or the I ain't, right? He's the I am. And he's the great and awesome I am. So we get the word Yahweh. He is outside of time and space. He is the infinite God. He is beyond the full comprehension of finite man. He's our God. He's our creator. He's our heavenly father. And he's the source of our grace and peace. He's the eternally existing one who always has been, always will be, who is perfect, holy, powerful, always present, and unchanging. 
And guess what? He's making promises to us. Can we trust him? See, guys, a promise is only as good as the one who makes the promise, where the promise comes from. And our promise comes from Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And remember, this book is being written to encourage believers in a time of great persecution, but also to unveil the person of Jesus Christ. And these promises and these truths originate with our Heavenly Father. Our promise comes from the one and only Great I Am. And then he says this, And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So the first one is the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. That's also going to be pointing to Jesus Christ later because Jesus and the Father are one. But from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now these could be speaking about seven angelic beings around his throne, but in the context it seems clear to me that this is a reference to the, to the Holy Spirit. Seven is a number of completeness in the Bible, and the idea of seven spirits is a quote from Isaiah 11. Where it says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. It isn't that there are seven different spirits, but the spirit of the Lord has these characteristics and in all these seven things portray all of, all of his fullness and perfection. So, so far this letter is being delivered by the Father and the Holy Spirit. But again, the main focus of this book, as we're about to see, is the Son. Jesus Christ. So the key point to this is there is one God in three distinct persons. All God, all perfect, all holy, all eternal, all powerful, all wise, and all three clearly referred to in this greeting. First, Him is God the Father. The seven spirits speak of the Holy Spirit. Now, secondly, in the unveiling of Jesus, point number two, who Jesus is. So along with the Father greeting Him, and the Holy Spirit greeting them, look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ. Again, he is the primary focus of this book. More than prophecy or end times. And this is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ as we go through this description of him. The one who is going to be unveiled in a deeper way as we go through all the chapters in this book. John brings a greeting from God the Son who is described by who he is, and what he's done. First of all, how do we describe Jesus? He is the faithful witness. Faithful. Can anybody else really take that claim to themselves besides Jesus Christ? You know, we can be faithful at times, but we can also be faithless at times. Amen? But Jesus is always faithful. He is the faithful one, trustworthy, sure, True, accurate, perfect. The faithful witness to what? When Jesus came, he came to do one thing, to point people to the Father. When the Holy Spirit was left after Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit came to do one thing, point people to Jesus Christ. You'll notice that even though all three are God, they never took the focus unto themselves. They were always pointing to someone else. And I love the humility that we see in the Godhead. How much more humble should we be? Amen? If God has used you in a powerful way, who should get the glory? God should get all of it. Amen? It's nauseating to see people talking about what great things they've done for God. Guys, here's the reality. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags in His sight. The best we can do is filthy rags. But guys, the good news is that with Christ, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? 
But since he's strengthening us, he should get all the glory. He's the faithful one. Jesus said to Philip on the night he was crucified, Philip said, show us the Father and it will be good enough for us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the faithful witness to the Father. Only Jesus is the accurate representation to the Father or of the Father. We must never come to conclusions about the Father based on the behavior of anyone else. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, they point to hypocrites in the church. I don't want to go to the church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. Have you ever heard that? I have many times. They'll point to an televangelist who got caught lying, stealing, committing adultery. God will deal with him. A Christian business owner who ripped him off. A Christian coworker who's dishonest and lazy and tells dirty jokes and ogles women. Guys, we don't look at man. We look at Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, because, you know, he's the only accurate, accurate representation of the Father, that's not an excuse for us as Christians to blow our testimony. Amen? He is the faithful witness, but we too are to be witnesses. Amen? And, you know, we should live in such a way that our hope and our desire would be that just as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that we would live in such a way that we could, to some small degree, be able to say to somebody, if you've seen me, you've got a glimpse of what Jesus is like. Now, I've never been able to say that, but I would hope that that would be our heart, that we would represent Jesus that way to the world. Amen? That people would look and say, okay, there must be something true about your faith because you're so different, and we're different because we have Jesus Christ living inside of us. He is the faithful what? He's the faithful witness. The word witness there is martyr. Jesus is the perfect and faithful representation of the Father, even unto death, death upon the cross. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the faithful martyr. Then it says, the firstborn from the dead. Now, firstborn, don't get tripped up by that. doesn't mean Jesus was the first one born. You know, the firstborn in a family was given a double portion of the inheritance, and Jesus isn't even the firstborn to be resurrected or the first one to be resurrected. The word firstborn there means special or unique. You know, Jesus had already raised Lazarus from the dead, right? He raised Tabitha from the dead. We just saw that in the book of Acts. But what it's talking about is that Jesus is special and he is unique because he was the first one who was raised from the dead who never again was subject to death. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Lazarus raised from the dead and then he died again. Tabitha was raised from the dead by Jesus and she died again. Jesus rose from the dead never to be touched by death again. And guys, here's the good news. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. It says in 1 Chronicles 15, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. From sin by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. When I was a youth pastor, I would put on the wall, Adam, sin, death, Jesus, salvation, life. Guys, we were all born through Adam. Everyone in the room is related to Adam, amen? But you know what? We were born sinful because of Adam's sin nature. Adam, sin, and when sin came, death came. But then Jesus came, and those of us who have been born, if we are born again through Jesus Christ, we will have salvation and the promise of eternal life, amen? So if you've only been born once, your promise you're, you're, you're living in sin, and your promise is death and separation from God. But if you've been born again, you have salvation, and you have the promise of eternal life. Aren't you glad that Jesus came? He's the firstborn over creation. Now, 
Firstborn, again, does not speak of being created or even the firstborn physically. It speaks of his preeminence and position and authority. I'll give you an example. Michelle Obama is the first lady, right? Does not mean that she was the first lady ever born. It refers to her position. And Jeremiah 31, speaking of Ephraim, God calls Ephraim his firstborn, even though he is the younger brother. Why? Because Ephraim had prominence. Jesus is the preeminent one over all creation. Jesus raised himself from the dead to die no more. He has triumphed over sin and death. He is the preeminent one. Amen? He should never be placed below anyone ever. Amen? And it's not Jesus alongside anyone else either. Amen? It's not Jesus or Buddha or Hare Krishna or anyone else. It's Jesus Christ alone. None of those other guys died on the cross. None of them rose from the dead. Jesus Christ alone did. He's the preeminent. He's the firstborn over creation. He's the one. Amen? That's the one that we serve. Then it says this of him. He's not only the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. Boy, this brings great peace to my soul. Amen? Because you look around at some of the kings on the earth and it's not so good. But here's the good news. Jesus is greater than all the world's earthly kings. The Bible says in Isaiah 6, In the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah reigned over Jerusalem for 50 years. In the end he died, as all men do. And the people of Judah wondered, what in the world are we going to do now? And then Isaiah pointed out, it's when the kings of this world pass away and we take our eyes off of worldly rulers that we can see Jesus for who he truly is. Guys, our faith is not in our government. Should we, be, should we vote? And should, I'm, I'm pro-America. I love being an American. I praise God for our country. I thank God I was born here. I'm as patriotic as they come. I'm watching the Olympics and rooting for the Americans, okay? But with that being said, my hope and my faith is not in my government it's in my Savior. Guys, the government will fail you. Our president will fail you. Pray for him. He needs to be saved. Pray for him. Amen? Pray for him. Pray for those in authority over us. We want to see them walking with the Lord. But with that being said, the good news is that God is in control and he's greater than all the kings of the earth. And he's going to be the one who ultimately rules and reigns. In 2 Zechariah, by the time we get to the end of, the book, of this book, we're going to see Zechariah 14, 8 fulfilled. And it says this, And in that day it shall be that the living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half toward the eastern sea and half toward the western sea, in both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be the king over all the earth. Guys, there's a day coming when Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign upon the earth, and we will reign with him for a thousand years, and we will see what the world would have been like with Jesus Christ as king. Hey, guys, that's going to be pretty awesome, amen? You've always thought, man, I wish we could have an, a godly president. We're going to have one during the millennial kingdom, amen? And Jesus is going to rule and reign. He rules the kingdom today, but it's not the kingdom of this world, not yet. He's the faithful witness, he's the firstborn from the dead, and he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's just the beginning of trying to describe Jesus Christ. That's why it's going to take this entire book to do so. But that gives us a little taste of who he is. Now, speaking of Jesus, we've seen who he is. What has he done for us? And look what it says. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
In describing what Jesus did for us, the first thing it says is that he loved us. Guys, isn't it awesome to know that Jesus loves you? That was a pretty weak response. Isn't it awesome to know that Jesus loves you? Amen? You know, I think my favorite worship song of all time is the one I learned, you know, in preschool. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Few things more profound than that. He loves us. Now, here's the good news. He knows everything about you, everything you've ever done, the things that you've hidden from everyone else. He knows, and he loves you anyway. Isn't that good? He who knows me best loves me most. He loves us. Jesus loves us. Now, I want you to think about the guy writing this. And I love this title for Jesus, To Him Who Loved Us. John is on the island of Patmos. He's in a a penal colony that was a big lava rock where they mined and quarried rock all day. John is in his 90s, had, had to endure great persecution and hardship working in these quarries all day as a 90 year old man. And yet, in the midst of all of that, he never doubted the love of his Savior because he understood that our Savior's love shouldn't be based on our circumstances, but by looking back at what He has done for us. Amen? Guys, if we look at our circumstances, we're going to feel like maybe the Lord doesn't love us sometimes. But notice the word there, loved, is in the past tense. It points to a particular time and place where Jesus loved us. Even though John, the apostle, Jesus, the apostle whom Jesus loved, he had walked with Jesus for three years, he had laid his head on Jesus' chest, the loved us points back to the cross of Calvary. You know what had stuck in John's mind? John was there at the foot of the cross. He witnessed the crucifixion firsthand. He saw the suffering of our Savior. And no amount of persecution, hardship, or exile in a rock quarry would ever cause him to forget all the Lord had done for him. Every believer should be securing God's love because, again, it's not based on our circumstances because they can be difficult at times, but based on the ultimate demonstration of love at the cross. Next time you think you're not loved, remember the cross of Calvary. How do you determine the value of something by what someone is willing to pay for it? How valuable are you to God? You're this valuable to Him. Amen? So you might be going, hey, we know the people right now, the economy's tough, things are, are, are hard right now, and some of us can start to feel overwhelmed and feel like God is, just doesn't care. Boy, that's a lie of the devil. The Lord cares so much for you. He, the greatest act of, of, of love in all of human history, and we're going to remember that as we take communion. It says in Romans 5, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The work of the cross is God's ultimate proof of his love for you. He may give additional proof, but there can be no greater proof. And no wonder many believers are not secure in knowing the love of Christ towards them because, again, they focus on their circumstances. Instead, we need to be looking back to the cross. You know, one commentator said this, It's the past tense gospel that the devil hates, the word loved us. Let a preacher continually say, God loves you, Christ loves you, and he and his congregation will by and by be losing sight of both their sinnerhood and the substitutionary atonement of the cross where the love of God in Christ once and for all 
supremely was set forth. Guys, yes, Jesus loves you, but remember that he loved you so much, he died in your place. Guys, it doesn't get any better than that. So it says he washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is what happened when Jesus loved us at the cross. He washed us. He cleansed us from the deep stain of sin. Who in here is a sinner? Raise your hand. Okay, guess what? One sin in heaven, you've got earth part two. It was one sin that brought all the mess, brought death, pain, sorrow, suffering, and separation from God. So there can be no sin in heaven, but yet we're all sinners. But praise God that Christ came and took all of our sin upon himself and washed it all away, and he did it because he loves us. You hear people say, what kind of God, what kind of loving God is there when there's all this you know, torment upon the earth? There's murder and rape and, and, and you know, hunger and, and you know, all these things that are going on upon the earth. The reason that there are so many trials upon the earth is not because of the love of God, but because of the sin of man. And it's the love of God that can deliver us from all these things, the torments that sin has brought upon us. We're clean before him. Boy, that's enough to praise Jesus forever and ever right there. Amen? You know, it's interesting. During the last song, as we were worshiping, I had my eyes closed. And I was just envisioning the day when we will be around his throne. And there will be more of us than the eyes, as far as the eye can see. And we're just going to be praising and worshiping him forevermore. And guys, he's worthy of that worship, isn't he? And we need to start worshiping him now. If we understand our own deep sinfulness, it seems almost too good to be true that we can stand clean before God. No wonder the same John also wrote in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Note the only thing that can cleanse us is what? What does it say? In his own what? Blood. If there had been any other way to wash us from our sins, God would have done it another way. But there was no other way. To wash us in his blood meant the ultimate sacrifice for God the Son. Remember Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he was in the garden, and he was sweating great drops of blood, and he cried out to the Father to let this cup pass from him. He understood that he was about to face separation. He was going to have the sin of all mankind placed upon him. He was going to suffer a torment that no man ever had before or ever will. But yet he still went. He still went. And I believe, Pastor Dave's opinion, that he personally thought about each and every one of us while he was hanging there. He's God. He could do that. Amen? It, isn't it humbling? He's hanging on the cross that he could have got down anytime he wanted to. He could have smoked those soldiers when they came to rest. As a matter of fact, when they came to find him and he said, I am, what did the soldiers do? They all fell backwards on the ground. He could have got away anytime he wanted to. They didn't arrest Jesus. He arrested them. Amen? And he went because he had a part to play. He knew that it was time to go and suffer and die that you and I might live. Notice the order here. I love this. First loved, then washed. Don't miss that. It wasn't that God washed us out of some sense of duty and then loved us because we were clean. He loved us while we were dirty and then he washed us. Don't you love that? He didn't say, oh man, out of duty, let me clean this guy up and make him lovable. 
All right, he's perfect now. Now I love him. That's not how our God is. He looked at us. He saw every imperfection, every sin, every vile thing we've ever done, every vile thing we were going to do, and then he washed us and loved us. He loved us and washed us. He loved us anyway, even in the midst of all that sin. He loved us anyway. That's the God we serve. He could have seen us in our filth and discarded us and started over. He's God. Couldn't he have done that? You know what? These people make me sick. I'm starting over. Erase, 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 start over. Let me start another earth with some better people. But he didn't do that. You know what? If we're to be Christ-like, we need to see people the way he does. And we're going to meet people that aren't very lovable, that maybe are pretty filthy, who haven't been cleansed yet. We need to love them the way Jesus loves them. Amen? They're captives to sin. They're lost. But the Lord loves them, and so should we. Verse 6. Has made us kings and priests. So not only has he cleansed us and loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. This is what Jesus makes of filthy sinners that he cleanses on the cross. He makes us not only citizens of his kingdom, but priests and kings. Now, what does a priest do? A priest has a twofold ministry. He represents God to the people, and he represents the people to God. And as Christians, that's what we're supposed to do. We are his ambassadors. We represent Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, and then we go before Almighty God to intercede on behalf of a world that is lost. We pray for them. We intercede on their behalf. So as we live out loud in front of the world, we should be representing Jesus Christ. And then as we go before the, the throne of God, we should be interceding on behalf of the lost. That's what a priest does, and he made us priests and kings. Guys, because we've been cleansed, we can enter into his presence anywhere and any time. That's a pretty awesome thing. Amen? You know, you can enter into God's presence driving down the freeway. I suggest you keep your eyes open when you're doing that, but you can do it. We've been cleansed, redeemed, forgiven. We're new creations in Christ. And we get to spend our lives as kings and priests. Now, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, you couldn't be a king and a priest. It could be one or the other. And the first one who came who was king and priest is Jesus Christ. He was king of kings and the great high priest. Under the new covenant, we can be like Jesus in that sense that he is both king and priest. King Uzziah of Judah is an example of a man who tried to combine both offices, and that didn't work out too well for him. If you want to read it, it's in 2 Chronicles 26. Read that later. And then it says says this. So he's loved us. He's washed us from our sins in his own blood. He's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And then it says this. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In light of all he has done for us, shouldn't we praise him? Guys, we don't give God the glory. We We simply recognize the glory that he already has. Amen? He has glory whether we recognize it or not. But you know what? An act of worship is to give him the glory or recognize the glory that he already has. To praise him, to worship and magnify his most holy name. To honor him. I read this quote by Spurgeon. It says, To recognize the glory of Jesus is to come out and out for him. Some of you are like a mouse hiding behind the wainscot. You're only in the Lord's house, but you're not known as one of his family. Sometimes you give a little squeak in your hiding place. Sometimes you come out at night as a mouse does to pick up a crumb or two without being seen. 
Is it worthy of yourself? Is it worthy of your Lord and Master? Guys, if we are his children, we should be unashamed. Amen? He hung on a cross for us. We should be living out loud for him. Now, with living out loud for the Lord comes with some responsibility, doesn't it? Because it's pretty hard to tell your coworkers about Jesus and let them know you're a Christian and then blow your testimony the next day when you fly off the handle, right? But can I encourage you? It's better to stand up for Christ and make a mistake and then use that mistake as an opportunity to tell, people, tell more people about Jesus because you let them know, look, I'm a sinner too. And praise God, he's forgiven me. Will you forgive me? Guys, when we blow it, we shouldn't stop sharing our faith. We should use that as an opportunity to share our faith more. Amen? Amen. And recognize, guys, we only have a limited amount of time to represent Christ upon this earth. And there are people all around us that need to hear the truth. Guys, it talks about recognizing the glory and the dominion that he has. The word dominion. He rules and reigns over us. And guys, if we're going to give him dominion, it means we give him dominion over every aspect of our lives, not just some of it. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And again, I'm not saying that we don't struggle holding on to parts of our life because every one of us does. We all have times when we just don't want to let go of certain things. We're like, king, you know, we're like uh, Saul who brought back King Agag. You know, he was told to go out and wipe out all the Amalekites, and he brings the king back. And the Amalekites are the type of the flesh in Scripture, and it brings back the king. It's kind of like, okay, I've given my life to Jesus Christ, but i got this one favorite sin of mine I want to keep. And you see what happens when Samuel shows up. He takes out a sword, and he cuts Agag into small pieces. Why? Because we need to put our flesh to death, and the only way we can, the sword is a representation of God's word. If you and I are to live holy and set apart lives, we need to be men and women of prayer, men and women of the word, men and women of fellowship, men and women who, are, who worship the Lord. Keep our perspective on the eternal, not the temporal. He's cleansed us, and he should have dominion. And he's going to have dominion in the world forever and ever and ever. And then it says, amen. Amen is so be it. Yes, it will be so. So the unveiling of Jesus. We've seen the greeting from God. We've seen who Jesus is, just a touch of it what Jesus has done for us. Now what Jesus has promised to do, verse 7. Pay attention. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, let me just say this right now. Last week I talked about all the different views on the millennium. This right here is ultimate proof to me that it has to be premillennial. Why? Because every eye will see him. Amen? Do we have any record of any time in human history that Jesus came back and everybody in the world stopped and saw him? Guys, it's coming. Amen? He is coming. Well, people have been talking about Jesus coming for a long time. Then it's closer than it's ever been. Amen? And we need to be ready for it. This is a command to look, to, to be looking up. Jesus or John moves from praising Jesus to describing his return, his second coming at the end of the great tribulation. Jesus said that we should watch and wait for his coming and live every day in anticipation of his soon return. And again, he didn't have a supernatural vision yet. You know why he knew he was coming? Because Jesus said he was coming. In John 14, 3, Jesus said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Jesus knew he was coming because he said he was coming. Guys, John knew 
excuse me, John knew he was coming. Why did he know? Because he knew the word. You and I will know if we know the word. And because he knew the word, he knew Jesus was coming. He's going to have some visions later, and he's going to see exactly what will happen when he comes. So Jesus didn't go to heaven to stay there. He has gone for the church's benefit. He will return for our benefit. He came for our benefit to redeem us. He went away for our benefit to prepare a place for us. And he's coming back for our benefit to receive us unto himself. The truth truth that Jesus is coming ought to be like a magnet that draws us closer to him and moves us from the temporal to the eternal. Guys, when Jesus Christ comes back, think about the biggest struggle you're having right now and how significant that's going to be after Jesus Christ comes. Yeah, but right now I'm, you know, hey, it won't matter. Aren't you glad? Amen? I'm glad when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be dealing with this illness I've been dealing with for seven months and may deal with for who knows how much longer. But the good news is there's no sickness in heaven. There's no pain, no sorrow, no death, no suffering. Amen? And notice what it says. He is coming with clouds. This is true literally because when He left, he was taken up into the cloud, and God said he would return in like manner. That's in Acts chapter 1. It's also true figuratively because the multitudes of believers are called clouds. In Hebrews 12, the the believers are called so great a cloud of witnesses. So clouds are commonly associated with God's presence, and when when he comes back, we will come back with him. The church will be raptured while the seven-year tribulation upon the earth. We will come back at the end of the tribulation, and then we will rule and reign with him upon the earth for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom, seeing what the world would be like with God in control. So clouds are commonly associated with God's presence. You see it in the wilderness, in Mount Sinai. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain, there was a cloud on top of the mountain? You remember that? They knew when God was there. Moses knew when God wanted to talk to him because the cloud would show up. And he'd go up there. The cloud represents his presence, his Shekinah, his glory. And what's amazing is we're referred to as that cloud. We're coming with him in the cloud. That means that you and I are part of his glory. Boy, that we don't seem worthy of that, do we? John, once again, didn't need a special vision. He knew from the Old Testament that this was true. Jesus' own words in Matthew said, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on clouds of heaven. Jesus said so, so it's going to happen. Amen? And we ought to be ready and looking up. And then it says this, and every eye will see him. When Jesus comes again, it won't be a secret event. Everyone's going to know. Amen? Everyone's going to know. There will be no other story. Nothing else will be going on. It will be the only thing that matters. You've heard people say things like, yeah, Jesus came back and he's living in Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm serious. Jesus came back and he's walking around. Come, there are people who say, I'm Jesus reincarnate. I'm so, this shows the grace of God that they have not been smoked by lightning. <laughs> right? Guys, when Jesus Christ comes back, everyone is going to know. He's not coming back undercover. He's not going to be hiding. Amen? John heard Jesus say this. If they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will also the coming of the Son of Man be. It's in Matthew 24. Now, every eye will see him. When he comes back, everyone will know it. It says, even they who pierced him. Now, of course, 
This is a reference in Zechariah chapter 12, speaking of the Jews. Now, we all know it's not the Jews alone who pierced our Savior. It was all of us because we're all sinners. Amen? But he had come to the Jews first, and they had rejected him. And they even said, let his sin be upon us and upon our children. But Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, that they may look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. Guys, there's a time coming when Jesus is going to, when he comes back, that the Jews who have scales over their eyes now will recognize him for who he is and they will mourn. And this is a good thing because through that, God's going to bring restoration. God is not done with his chosen people. Again, John didn't need a vision to know that even those who have pierced him, he, all he had to do was read Zechariah 12.10. And then it says this, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. When Jesus comes, it won't only be the Jewish people who mourn because of their previous rejection of Christ, since there will, they will be saved from, there will be tribes saved from all the tribes of the earth. Everyone will have his part in this mourning. They're going to look on his scars and say, look what we did to him. Everyone will say, look what we did to him. Didn't need a special revelation to know that all the tribes would mourn. It says in Matthew 24, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Everyone's going to see him when he comes back, and all will mourn. John knew the truth about the future return of Christ because he knew what the Word of God said. Guys, as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to know the truth about the coming of Christ if we know what the Word of God says. Over the next several months, we're going to study in depth Christ coming back and the events that will happen you know, between the rapture and His second return and when the church goes away. And we'll know the coming events of the future by simply studying the Word of God. It says, They will mourn, even so, amen. And then finally, how Jesus introduces Himself. Look at verse 8. John's been talking so far. If you have a good translation, your letters of your verse 8 should be in red, right? And that's because Jesus is now speaking. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he should introduce himself, and he does. John finished with his introduction, and now Jesus takes over. And he says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, or the ancient Greek alphabet, Omega was the last letter. Jesus says, I am the A to Z. I am the beginning and the end. These titles for Jesus mean he is before all things. He will remain beyond all things. He is both the beginning and the end, and he has authority over everything in between. Guys, Jesus Christ is in control. Amen? He's God, he's sovereign, he's faithful. He always has been, he always will be. He always was. Where was Jesus before that? He was always there. What about before that? He was there. What, he was there. Does that give you a headache? It ought to. You know why? It's finite man trying to understand infinite God. I'm glad I serve a God that I can't completely figure out. Amen? Amen. Because he's way too great. I said this last week, we're going to get to heaven, we're going to be blown away how great he is. And Lord, help us to get a glimpse of your greatness that we might live according to that today. Amen? Because we're going to get to heaven and go, if I had any idea that he was this great, I would have done stuff a lot different. (laughs) Amen? 
I'd have prayed more. I'd have stepped out in faith more. I would have believed it more. He's in control from creation to his human incarnation, to his crucifixion, to his resurrection, to his ascension. His plan has been fulfilled in history. He's being fulfilled, it's being fulfilled in the present. It will be fulfilled in the future. Our lives are not given to blind fate or random meaningless, meaninglessness, but the sovereign plan of the all-knowing, all-powerful, always has been, always will be perfect holy God. Amen? Boy, I'll tell you, it just brings, some, brings peace to your heart when you know that. I'm in this situation right now. Now, guys, I want to say this. Sin has consequences. So I may go out and rebel against God and find myself in a ditch. But here's the good news. God still loves me in the ditch. Amen? And he's willing to pull me out if I would just turn back to him. You've heard me say it many times. You can take a million steps away from God. It's only one step back. Amen? He's a faithful God. But I want to say this. When we're obedient to him, we may still find ourselves on occasion in a ditch. God will allow us to fall there that we might minister to others in the ditch. God will allow us to go through trials that he may humble us and make us more like himself, to perfect us, to, to conform us to his image, that he might be glorified. So praise God for it, amen? Who is, who was, and who is to come. Again, these words reflect the eternal nature and unchanging presence of our Savior. Jesus has an eternal nature just as much as God the Father does. In Micah 5.2, prophetically it says this way, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. In Hebrews 13.8, speaking of Jesus, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice, who is, who was, and who is to come, that was a description of the Father, and now it's a description of the Son. Because Jesus and the Father are one. Amen? Amen? And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And he's unchanging. Aren't you glad Jesus won't change his mind? People will say, well, I'm praying that God will change his mind. Not me. Because you know what? <laughs> if he could change his mind, he could decide not to come back for us. Amen? But he won't. Because he doesn't change his mind. Because he's perfect, holy God. He's unchanging. That's the God we serve. And then finally, I love the last two words. This, this is Jesus describing himself. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. And then he says this, the Almighty. In Greek, that word means the one who has his hand on everything. The reverence here speaks to his, great, his greatness, his sovereignty, that he has control over everything in the past, everything in the present, and everything in the future. The word almighty, this word, this actual Greek word, is used ten times in the Bible, and nine of them are in the book of Revelation. Describing Jesus Christ. Guys, he's the almighty. We're not even kind of mighty. Amen? <laughs> he's almighty. Boy, I'll tell you, again, knowing who we serve and who we follow and the promises he's made ought to bring a peace to our lives that cannot even be described that has nothing to do with our circumstances and has everything to do with the one that we serve. This book has a great emphasis on the sovereignty of God, the understanding that he has his hand on everything. Before time existed, he was there. In creation, he was there. In his own crucifixion, obviously, he allowed himself to be there. 
In our lives today, He is there. In every event that the future holds, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, He is there. God is in control. Guys, we can rest in that truth. As I said last week, I've read the end of the book, and here's the good news, we win. Amen? He's coming back. He's going to take He's going to rapture us. He's going to... We're going to be in heaven with him, and then we're going to come and rule and reign with him for a thousand years, and then we're going to go back to heaven with him, and we'll be there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And how does any of that compare to the slight trials of this life that we're going through today? Amen? Give him all the glory. He deserves it. So, the unveiling of Jesus. Who Jesus is. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's a ruler over the kings of the earth. What Jesus has done for us, he loved us, he washed us from our sins in his own blood, and he made us kings and priests. What Jesus has promised to do, to come back with clouds, and to, that every eye will see him and mourn. So he's coming back. And then finally, how Jesus introduces himself, he's the Alpha and the Omega, he's the beginning and the end, he's the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and he is the Almighty. That's the God we serve, Amen. And praise God that we can be his sons and daughters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. You are a great and an awesome God. And Lord, what a privilege it is that we as sinful men and women can know perfect holy God. and can have an intimate relationship with you. can be adopted into your family. can be called your sons and daughters. And Lord, now as we go to this time of communion, I pray, Lord, that each of us would take this time to look back on the greatest act of love in all of human history when you sent your son to suffer and die in our place. Lord, as we take these elements and we spend some time just reflecting, may we look back to the cross and be thankful for what you've done for us. Lord, may we also look within and examine our own lives and our own hearts before you. Lord, reveal to us any wicked way to be in us. Lord, that we might get right with you this morning. And Lord, not only looking back to the cross and looking within, but looking ahead, looking forward to the day we will have this supper with you in heaven. We can't wait. What a promise. What a privilege. What a blessing. Lord, we love you and we praise you. To you be all the glory. Lord, we know this is only a scratch of a description of who you are. But Lord, what an awesome thing to begin to even recognize a part of who you are. You are so great. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said...